things that makes this morning so special for us as a church is that we have the privilege of welcoming a special guest, a new friend, uh, Pastor John Anwuchekwa, to be with us here this morning. Uh, John has pastored churches in Texas and in Georgia, and since 2015 has pastored Cornerstone Atlanta. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and is currently studying at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of the book, Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church. He and his wife, Chandra, were married in 2007 and welcomed their daughter, Ava, in 2017. Uh, It's just been a real privilege to spend time with him this weekend, to be encouraged by him and his ministry. He's a a lover of Jesus, a faithful pastor, and an avid Houston Rockets fan. And uh, as long as the Warriors aren't in the finals, I can lock arms with him on that, Um, but why don't we join together and, and give a, a nice welcome to Pastor John as he comes and preaches to us. Well, good morning. Glad to be here um, with you all this morning. I am a Rockets fan. I'm from Houston, uh, but I'm also a Houston Texans fan because I'm from Houston. So uh, I'm not a Steelers fan. I hope you all still. Oh, I know it hurts, right? I hope you all still love me at the end. They um put a terrible towel in my gift basket, so um, I'm willing to gift that to any one of you all, my new friends here. So if you want one, come and find me at the end, and I got it for you. Um, Yeah, yeah, but like Mike said, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know um, new friends now. I love your pastors uh, dearly and consider them brothers in this work that we have, and um, if they are my brothers, then you are uh, my extended family. And the good thing about family is you don't have to like the same sports teams, right? So um, glad to be out here with you all. So as family, um, I want to ask you all to do something that I ask my family to do week in and week out, um, and that's stand as we read God's Word. So if you would, if you can, um, would you uh, stand with me? We'll be in Habakkuk chapter 3. I believe it's on page 787 in your pew Bibles. I don't know where it is if you don't have a pew Bible, but find it or look on with somebody else or look at the screen. I'm going to read from the Christian standard version uh, of the Bible. You have to have pretty good eyesight to read those. That's a little tiny. uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I'll start. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on stringed instruments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and our prayer um, is that you make us today what we're not but what we hope to be, Father. Uh, I pray that we would look to you uh, and be reminded that your word is... um, like a window where we can peer into the, the, the greatness and the glory of who you are. I pray as we see that, 
and behold you in the face of your son Jesus, that we would be changed. So change us, Father. Give us um, a joy that's untethered to our circumstances. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you all to take your seats. What do you do when what God says doesn't line up with who it is that he claims to be? What do you do when what God says doesn't line up with what it is or who it is that you know him to be? Before we get to what you do with it, I'm going to tell you what you have when that takes place. What you have when that takes place is doubt. All right, and I want you to hear this. Doubt is nothing more than a conflict. Doubt is really these uh, mismatched socks in between our expectations of God and our experience with God. It's things that should go together, but they don't match. It's a conflict. And I think you and I are scared of conflict, and here's why we're scared of conflict. Because you and I know that conflict ends relationships. We have friendships, family, loved ones that have become former friendships, former family, former loved ones. All because we found ourselves in a conflict and the conflict ended the relationship. We said, I don't want anything to do with them. But here's what I want you to know about conflict. Conflict always ends things. But conflict doesn't have to end relationships. Conflict can also end shallowness in relationships. And here's what I mean by that. You don't have a deep friendship or you won't have a deep friendship that is conflictless. Your best friends are the people that you've gone through the hardest times with. Conflict doesn't have to end things. Conflict can end the shallowness of things. And if doubt is a conflict, then it works the same way. Oftentimes when we think of doubt that that we have with God, we tend to think that doubt is an enemy of faith, that doubt is a disqualifier of faith, that if doubt is... Uh, or, or if our faith is like a flame, then doubt feels like the little kid at the birthday party that blows out somebody else's candles. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because what you learn about wind is that wind can extinguish fire, or if wind is directed rightly, it can expand fire. So doubt doesn't have to extinguish faith. Doubt can expand it, right? So what we have when our experiences with God don't match up with our expectations is doubt. And we all have it. We can't escape it. Here's where doubt comes from. Doubt comes when you and I live life and we see the world's badness, but we only hear about God's goodness. Doubt creeps in when you and I hear how good God is, but we see the faces of our spouse or our children when they face infertility or a miscarriage. Doubt comes when we hear about God being a protector, but we see the face of our spouse 
children or loved one that has been abused or taken advantage of by somebody that they've trusted. Doubt comes in when we hear about how God loves marriage and God loves his children, but we see the faces of a spouse or children or friends that have experienced the pains that come from adultery. Comes when we live and we just say things don't match up. We all have it, but what do you do with it? What you do with it makes all the difference. And here's what I mean by that. When doubt comes in, especially as it relates to how you interact with God, you cannot just ignore it and hope that it goes away. One of the worst things that you can do when doubt springs up in your mind about God and his goodness is to ignore it and just give him the benefit of the doubt and to just act like it'll be all good. Because what you quickly find out is that unasked questions don't just stay there. They're like wet cement. Unasked questions harden into unfounded conclusions and unfair criticisms of God. Have you ever met somebody, or you may have been this person, that started off and said, why God? And what you find out is that why God can quickly turn into how could you, God? Which is more of a statement than it is a question. So what do we do with our doubts? I think the book of Habakkuk as a whole gives us this great case study of a guy who doubts God. And chapter 1 is all about him and a problem that he has with God. But chapter 3 ends with a praise of God. How many of you have ever found yourself in a place where you've had a problem with God? How many of you have ever found yourself in a place where you've doubted God and His goodness? Well, I want you to know, doubt is not a false start that disqualifies you from the race. Doubt can be used to deepen the relationship that you have with God. This is what takes place in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to spend our time in the third chapter, but I want to set a little bit of context for you. Chapter one, Habakkuk gets a vision from God. Habakkuk is a prophet, and if you know anything about the Bible, what you find out is that God used to speak to his people through prophets. So these prophets served as the middleman in between God and man. So what would take place is God's people would act up. God would have something that he wanted to say to them. God would speak to the prophet and the prophet would call God's people back to do what God wanted them to do, to live how he hoped that they would live. In Habakkuk, this prophet reverses things. So God speaks to him he sees this vision, and the book starts off with Habakkuk not trying to call back God's people to do what they should, but he looks back at God and says, God, that don't add up. And so you see the book, this starts with a man saying, God, I doubt your goodness. I see the world's badness, and I hear about your goodness. And do you know what he does? He speaks up. He turns 
his doubts about God into a dialogue with him. And that's the thing that helps him move from a problem to praise. So just really quick, this is an application point. It's not really in there. One of the best things that you can do is to record your doubts and turn your doubts with God into a dialogue with him. Um, I, uh, uh, in middle school, right, I used to have a bunch of girls that I liked, and I didn't know how to talk to them, so I'd be on the phone with them, and the conversation would go really, really bad because I would get really nervous and quiet. So what I did through, through the course of the day is I'd have this notebook, and any time I thought of anything interesting or funny to say, I'd just jot it down on my little notebook, right? I'd fill up this notebook, so then when I'd get on the phone with them, um, I'd literally just go down the line, and, and, and they would... They were impressed at the end. They're like, John, you're such a great conversationalist. And what they didn't know was that I wasn't. I was just a good recorder through the course of the day. The same thing works with any doubts that you have about God. One of the best things that you can do is keep your phone on you. Um, keep a pen and pad on you. And as those doubts come up, record them. And if you have trouble praying... Sit down with that notebook and just go one by one. Habakkuk does this, takes his doubts about God, turns it into a dialogue with him. And then what he does is he listens. God speaks back. Chapter 2 is all about him listening to God. He's surprised by what God says, but he listens to him. And chapter 3 is this praise. His problem with God turns into a praise of him. And so, if you're ever going to turn your problems with God into a praise of him, the very first thing that has to take place is you have to know your God. You have to know your God. Point one is this. You have to know your God. I played sports my whole life, and one of the uh, things that we did when we were getting ready to face somebody is we had a scouting report. And all that that was was one of the staff coaches would put together a highlight reel of the best player on the team that we would play. And so we'd watch for 20 minutes their point guard, their star player, doing all of the things that he does so well. And the reason why we watched that and studied it was because we knew that people have habits. There's things that they do. And so if we could watch it and study it, then what we could do is we could look at what he's done in the past and predict what he would do when we faced him. Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 15 is this. It's a scouting report of God. What does he do in the past? And this is so helpful when you and I come to read our Bibles, so often uh, we read our Bibles as if it's a mirror, a book to tell us about us, but it's not that. Your Bible is a window meant for you not to look and see yourself. You can see a faint reflection of yourself in a window, but the point of a window is to look through it to see somebody else. Your Bible is a window to look through it and see God. So Habakkuk starts, and he says, if we're ever going to move from the problems that we have with God to appraise him, the very first thing that we have to do is we have to know him. Look here at verse 1. It says this, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigianoth, basically a song. Verse 2, look, 
Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. He's saying, God, I've heard the scouting report about you. I've seen how awesome you are and how well you do things. But then he goes on and says this, look, revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. He's praying for hope. He's saying, God, I've seen what you used to do back then. But right now, as I look at my life, it seems like you've retired. God, and I'm praying that you would unretire. What you did for folks back then, would you do it for me? Would you do it for us? And here's what I love about this prayer. He spent chapters 1 and 2 rehearsing all his doubts. But now in this prayer, he does more remembering than requesting. Verse 2 is the only request that he's going to give in this prayer. God, I pray that you would come out of retirement and do what I heard that you used to do. But the rest of this is he's just remembering all of what God had done. And you can just see that as you look at all the pronouns. Just look through verses 3 through 6, right? At the end of verse 3, his splendor, his brilliance is like the light. Verse 4, verse 5. Plagues go before him, verse 6. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. His pathways are ancient. Look down at verse 8, and he, he goes from the third person to the second. You, God, are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath, your rage, you ride, you're victorious. You took. You split, you march, you trample, you come, you crush, you pierce, you tread the sea, verse 15, with your horses stirring up the vast waters. His, 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 you, you, you. He is remembering the faithfulness of God. Not just broadly, but specifically. Look here at verse 3, it says this. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount parent to an Israelite or a Jew back then they would have recalled these places as special because it would remind them of the exodus where God freed his people from bondage for you and I it may not strike those same chords but what it does do is it gives us a location on earth that tells us where God is starting to come from to instill in you and I that this God that we're calling to act is not a God that's far off, but He's coming from close. Have you ever been at an airport? Your flight was going to get in at 5 o'clock. You had a friend that was supposed to come and get you at 5 o'clock. It's 5 o'clock. You call them on the phone and you say, hey friend, it's 5 o'clock. Where are you? And you can hear the TV in the background. And they say, I'm on my way. And you say, you're not on your way. You're in Newcastle, and I'm in Pittsburgh, and I know that's a 45-minute drive. You're far. That's not what takes place here. I got to the airport yesterday, and I called Johnny, and I say, where are you? And he says, we're in the building. We're close. 
You don't have to wait for long. We're right here. As he recounts and talks about God, he doesn't talk about God as if he's just some distant being in heaven that has to make a long road trip to come and get him. He's saying, God, we know that you're close. And not just that he's close, but this God that he hopes will save him is confrontational. Ready to fight. Here at verse 8. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your rage against the sea? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot. What does he mean there? Have you ever had a friend that has an anger problem and may walk into their house and there's holes in, in, in the wall that they punch through just because they were mad and you would say something along the lines of, what did that wall do to you? Why are you mad at the wall? This is what he's saying. He's saying, God, what did the Red Sea do to you? I saw the way that you twisted it out of its order. And then you violently made a comeback. What did the Red Sea do to you? And what God's saying is, I had a people that were oppressed and in bondage. And Pharaoh let them go, but then he chased them out of town. And Pharaoh thought that he could use the Red Sea that I made to scare my people and to put their backs up against the wall. And that's what the Red Sea did to me. That's why I was mad that he's painting this picture of God being somebody that's confrontational. Verse 9, look, you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. He's saying, no, God is somebody that's not just passively sitting down. He's ready to fight against injustices. I'm not really familiar with Western PA, but in the neighborhood that I grew up in, right, if Habakkuk wrote this where I grew up, um, he wouldn't say God took a sheath out of his bow because we didn't really use bows and arrows, but he would say, man, he took a shirt off. He said, hey, let's step outside. That it's this picture of this God that is a warrior, that is angry at the injustices and the badness, the wickedness that goes on in the world and in our lives. And what he's doing is he's recounting all of this stuff that God does. Look at verse 11, right? Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. What's he calling to mind there? Book of Joshua. Where they're in this war and this battle, and God wants to make sure that things are done before the day is over. And we just pretend to play with time when we set our clocks forward and backwards an hour. But what God did was he actually took the sun and the moon and he told them to hold on and stand still and he created an extra day. Verse 13, listen. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked. You strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. Verse 14. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast 
water. What is he doing? He's singing all of God's greatest hits, y'all. Remembering the great things that God has done to save his people. And the question that I want to ask you is this. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can you, at the drop of a dime, closed book test with your Bible closed, can you just go through and start to recount the great things that God has done? The way that he saved his people time and time again, when it seems like their back were against the wall, when it seemed like they had every reason to doubt him. Can you do that? More than can you, do you do that? When you find yourself at a place where your experiences with God don't match your expectations, do you sit back and say, I know things look bleak, but I remember that time that God did this? Is it so embedded in your soul that are the works of God so beautiful and precious to you that you can't help but to draw it to mind? My favorite genre of music is 90s R&B. Um, I love it's just in my soul and my wife hates it because whenever she we find ourselves in a conversation um, regardless of if it's a serious one or not and she lets any phrase slip out of her mouth that is either the title of a song or a phrase in a song I stop our conversation and I just start singing right it's just so in my soul that any mention causes it to come out. Is that true with God and His deeds? Do you do that? My mom did it. My mama does it. She does it. And what you quickly find out is that's the only way that you can face life after experiencing five miscarriages and the doctor's telling you you will never have kids and then you have five children. And that time is just recounting the faithfulness of God. It's the only way as a mother that you can wake up on St. Patrick's Day wanting to celebrate the death or the birth of your second son because it's his birthday but not being able to tell him happy birthday because he passed away four years ago. What do you do when those things come in? I was on the phone with her this morning before I came out here to preach. And do you know what she was doing? Recounting the faithfulness of God. Reminding herself and me, of God's greatest hits. As people that believe the Bible and love the Bible, we spend a lot of our time working on our insight, trying to figure out what God's doing and why, when we should be spending more of our time working on our hindsight, being reminded of what God has already done. And so here it is. Here's my sermon in a sentence. Because God 
can't change. His past faithfulness is really a future promise. Because God cannot change. His past faithfulness, what he's done in the past, is our scouting report of him. We can predict with 100% certainty what he will do in the future because he doesn't change. That's the starting point when this truth is practiced. Do you know what you have? You have faith. You have hope. Worship. Here's how I'd say that same truth if I was back at my church, and I would say it like this. If you know your God, point one, then regardless of what life throws your way, you can know that you're good because you know your go- what good that you have. If you know your God, then you can know your good. Here's point two. If point one was know your God, point two is this. You can know that you are good. Like I said, this is a song that he sings at the end, and this song is an expression of his worship. And here is the best, simplest definition of worship that I could think of. Worship is this. Worship happens as a result of the realization that the state of your soul doesn't have to match the state of your surroundings. Worship is just the response. It's the aha moment when you realize that the state of my soul doesn't have to match how things look out here. Right? Fashion, fashion changes. It's changed my whole life. Uh, like I said, I was born in 84. I grew up in the 90s, um, the 1990s. Uh, and what you found then, what I found then, was that uh, uh, it was cool to match. Everything had to match. Your hat had to match the logo on your shirt with the shirt that you wore underneath, the belt, the shoes, all of that. It was cool to match. Now I pastor a church in Atlanta with folks that are younger than I, that have grown up in a generation where it is cool not to match. Where things don't have to match, right? Your hat, it really doesn't have to match. Like, people just walk around mismatched. But I think this, that mismatchedness, if I could invent a word, is probably the best picture of faith in God at work. The state of your soul doesn't have to match your surroundings. Here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 16. This is what comes to somebody that knows their God in anticipation of judgment. He says this, verse 16. I heard, look, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must wait quietly for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. This is a man that says, people are coming to invade us, and it's scary, and it's going to be some time until they're dealt with, and so now I just have to sit and wait with it. Look look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there's no fruit on the vine, 
though the olive crop fails, he talks about the optional things, right? There's no fruit, right? There's, there's no fruit on the vine, right? There's no wine for us to rejoice in life with. No olives, right? So he's like, all right, these are the luxuries of life, and I don't have those things. Then he goes on and starts to talk about the more essential things. Look, and the fields produce no food. He's saying there's no vegetables, there's no food. That's fine. I can live without asparagus, right? That's fine. As long as I have meat, right? Though the flocks disappear from the pen. It's not just there's no vegetables. He's saying there's no meat. Can you imagine an existence with no meat? Uh, we have these folks in Atlanta called vegetarians. Do y'all have them here as well? Yeah. Strange, strange bunch, but. And then he goes on and says this, and there are no herds in the stalls. I'm, I'm, I make light of it in those jokes, but here's what he's saying. I look around, and everything that I thought was essential for my joy is gone. There's nothing. He's saying, I look around and I don't have anything. Can you imagine that? I realize in a room this size, some of y'all don't have to imagine that. Because that's what your life is right now. You can look around and say, there are no kids. Or no kids anymore. There's no job. There's no more health. No prospects for marriage. No hope that as you sit right now and take an assessment of your life, there's not much to rejoice in. And we tend to say all of those things and put a period at the end of that sentence. But look at him. He brings this up in verse 17. Though I don't have any of this, hear what he says. Verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. He's saying, I don't have any of this, but I'm going to rejoice. Why? The state of my soul doesn't have to match my surroundings. He's, he's worshiping. He's mismatched. I think he's mismatched because he doesn't do something that you and I do. We tend to treat our circumstances like elevator buttons. Getting on an elevator... Somebody asks, what floor are you going to go to? And we say, sickness, joblessness, failing health, cancer, 
infertility, failed adoption, abuse, being taken advantage of, no food on the table, no prospects, you name it. And we tend to take the circumstances of our lives and treat them as if our soul is tethered to them. So that we think that the only hope for our soul to be able to rise up is for God to come and to fix and for us to have a good job and a better marriage and better health. But what happens if those things don't take place here in this life? His point His celebration, hear this, it's rooted in verse 18, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God that saves His people. The God that doesn't change. If you want a consistent joy, if you want to worship consistently, it has to be rooted in something that's constant. Listen, God doesn't change and your circumstances will not remain the same. They can't help but to change. So to root your joy in your circumstances is like going home and building your entire wardrobe based on a rainy day. Who would look at rain outside and say the application is, I've got to go home, sell all of my shoes, and buy rain boots? No, some days it's going to rain and it's going to shine, but at the end of the day, those things change. What stays the same is God, and what that means is this, worship is a response to the revelation of God, not to your observations of the world. Worship is about revelation, not observation. We can come in week after week and feel like, it's hard for me to sing these songs about God being good. It's hard for me to raise my hands. It's hard for me to worship. It's hard for me to be motivated to want to go out and live right because things just don't add up. My health is still failing. My job is still bad. My, my prospects of marriage is still slim. My kids are still out there. Or oh, I still don't have any. We talk about all the things that are surrounding us and I would say, all of those things may be absolutely true, but all of those things have absolutely nothing to do with your worship. A steady and a constant God whose past faithfulness is a future promise. Your circumstances will always change. And you may say, John, but you don't know the specifics of my life. And right now, I feel like I'm in really, really, really deep darkness. Things just feel really dark, and I don't know when the lights are going to come back on. And what I would say is, if your life is dark right now, and I mean really, really, really dark, one of the reasons 
that the lights are being shut off may be for the very reason when you go to the movies, the person in the back turns the lights off in order that the focal point, the picture on the screen would really pop up. You and I get angry when we go and pay lots of money to watch a movie and the 16-year-old in the back that's on his phone doesn't turn the lights off when he should. Because I can't see the picture on the screen like I should. I need that darkness, not for me to focus on the darkness. Nobody goes to the movies to look at the dark walls. The darkness just helps us see the bigger picture. And here's what God often does. Listen, people in the deepest darkness are often the most well-equipped to experience the deepest joys because they're not blinded by shallow substitutes. Jupiter Hammond. Uh, was uh, African-American that uh, was freed. Uh, he addresses a congregation or a group in New York of both uh, free men and slaves in 1787. So it's this group of black folks that were Christians. He addresses them in the state of New York 40 years after the Great Awakening in which a revival swept across the U.S. that seems like uh, has been unparalleled since then. And you have a group of folks in this room that have heard about the goodness of God in saving all of these souls, and it practically has not had an effect on their freedom. Eleven years prior to this point, the United States wins its independence July 4th, People are rejoicing in the streets about how free they are while these group of black Christians are still enchained and enslaved. And listen to what Jupiter Hammond tells these people that are experiencing a deep darkness. He tells them this. Now, my brethren, it seems to me that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as we do. Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy after death? Why should we spend our whole lives in sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptation to neglect religion as others. Riches and honors which drown the greater part of mankind who have the gospel in perdition can be little or no temptation to us. What he's saying is, there are people that have had the gospel and have lived these lives of comfort and ease where they've chased shallow substitutes of riches and honor and like Paul says, have shipwrecked their faith. And he says to a group of folks who are experiencing a deep darkness, listen, 
You've been guarded from that. Your deep darkness is meant to illuminate this picture of Christ greater on this screen. So although the state of your surroundings seems like it would keep you low, you are those that know your God. And those that know their God can know that they're good. They live these mismatched lives where they know the state of their souls doesn't have to match the state of their surroundings. And so it helps to put both sin and faith into a new life. It helps to put those as relational terms. Now all sin is, is a lack of faith that God will do something with the bad he allowed. Faith is saying, all right, so sin is this. I can't believe that God did this. I can't believe that God let this take place. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to fix it. Where faith says, God did this. I'm not 100% sure of why he allowed it. But I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to let him finish. I, I was telling Mike, we moved into a new church building um, two weeks ago. And long story short, last Saturday, I'm on the phone with Georgia Power because when we bought our church building, they failed to, to disclose that the meter to the building that we met in was on an address that they didn't provide for us. So Georgia Power shut off our power, and it's a day before we're supposed to meet here and have our second service. So we're on the phone, and I call. I get in touch with this one lady, and she says, hey, they shut off the power at the transformer. It's going to be some time before we get to it, but we're going to get to it. At 7.30 that night, I drove by, and the power was still not on. I have an option. I can say, I know where the problem is. It's at the transformer. I've got a ladder at home. I'm going to climb the ladder, and I'm going to fix this. Or I could say, things aren't done quite yet. It doesn't look like it'll be done, but I'm going to trust the word that I heard. I am still alive and breathing, so y'all know that I chose the ladder. <laughs> but this is what sin is. It's saying, God, I can't believe that you did this. I know where the problem is. I'm going to fix it myself. Faith says, God, I can't believe that you did this but I'm going to let you finish. And you may say, well, John, that's good, that's instructive, that's helpful, but there's still this darkness that I face in my life that, that you just don't know about. You, you don't know what it's like, and I feel like I'm powerless, and I, I, I don't have the strength to endure. Well, the good news of the Bible is that it doesn't just give us helpful principles to apply. It gives us the picture of a person that had applied those principles that died for us, that rose from the grave to put his spirit inside of us so that we could do what he did. Look here at the end of verse 18. Look, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And then he goes on and says this, the Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. What you find out is that at the top of mountains, the ground is real jagged, it's uneven, it's hard to walk. But you look at like deer and sheep and they effortlessly prance on what seems like unwalkable terrain. And as he's starting to rejoice in God, 
He's putting his faith in something that he hasn't seen yet that he hopes God will do in the future. But the good news of the gospel is that you and I have the end to this story. He's in faith looking forward to what God has done, but you and I on this side of the life of Christ, we look backwards to what Christ has done. So we find somebody who was a greater prophet than Habakkuk named Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us did. Habakkuk's crying out to God because he's getting ready to face the darkness that came as a result of his own disobedience. Jesus finds himself on his knees in a garden crying out to God because he's getting ready to face a darkness and obedience that he did not deserve. And as he's on the ground on his knees speaking back to God, saying, God, if there's any other way, please do this. But not my will, but yours be done. He hears from God. And he stands up and he goes and faces this darkness head on. Habakkuk, you and I oftentimes feel the darkness that is the consequences of our sin. Not all the darkness in the world is a consequences of our sin, but sometimes you and I feel the very real darkness that comes as a result of the consequences of our sin. Habakkuk is getting ready to face this. Jesus experiences this darkness, not as a result of his disobedience, but as a demonstration of God's perfect justice. And that's this. The God that we serve is so holy that if sin is found, even on His perfect Son, whom He loves so much, He's not going to be an impartial judge. God's justice is seen as the cross. As Jesus gets God's full wrath, it should have been poured on us. Oh, but the good news, church, is that God's love is seen at the cross as well. Habakkuk's prayer in verse 2 was, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. And he did that in Christ. That in Christ, Jesus facing that death on the cross, what he took was the wrath that we earned so that he could give to us the love that he earned. So that now as we look to God, because of what Christ has done for those of us that have put our faith in him, we have nothing to fear from God. No condemnation, no, no, no anger, no malice, no wrath. But also at the cross, we see God's power to overcome darkness. Look at verse 14 as it recounts God's past acts of greatness. Look, you pierce his head with his own spears. It's saying that when God is going to confront his enemy, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to beat him with his own weapon. Do you know how Jesus Christ beat death? With death. There's a lot of darkness that we face in this life, but nothing more dark than the day that you and I will have to go and somebody will close the casket on us. And Jesus not only suffers on a cross, but he dies. And he goes first and further into 
a darkness that you and I could never imagine. And the power of God is seen in that Jesus changes the sentence. Before him, death closed everybody's sentence with a period. It was done. But then Jesus dies. People think that it's done. And then he gets up from the grave and rises, showing us that for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, here's the good news of the gospel. Death is no longer the end of a sentence. Death doesn't put a period at the end of our sentences. It merely puts a comma. It is just a small break and a pause en route to a greater life that we do not deserve, but we get fully. Hear me, church. If you know your God, if you know your God, who He is, then regardless of what life throws you away, you can know that you're good. Because God's past faithfulness is really a future promise. And when you and I live these lives that are these mismatched lives, it causes people to stop and stare the same way that you would somebody that walked through here that didn't match. You would just look and say, that's odd. The reason why when God saved us, He left us here is because there are people Sometimes we refer to them as non-believers. I like to refer to them as people that are not yet believers. Not yet is an honest term, but it's hopeful, right? You know, I'm 34 years old, um, and I'm not a swimmer, so I can't swim. But when people ask me, John, can you swim? I say, I'm not yet a swimmer. It's honest. But it's hopeful. So what we find is that when we live these peculiar lives, people that are not yet his people, who won't do like we do and immerse ourselves in God's word and the book to hear from him, who won't do like we do and immerse ourselves in prayer because we know that, they're, uh, or we know that he hears us, but what they will do is they will immerse themselves in our presence. And when you and I live these lives where our souls do not match the state of our surroundings, then, then we, we can go blow for blow and they, they can say, yeah, yeah, I'm not a Christian because I doubt God. There's too many things in my life that don't add up. And what we could say is, well, that's funny because the only reason I have a deep relationship with God is because I doubt Him as well but I turn my doubts into dialogue. And the more I talk to him and the more that I hear from him and recount what he's done in the past, I'm reminded that the works that he's done in the past, that the problems that I face are not new. And what you'll, you and I will find is that most people, when it comes to Christianity, um, are like most high schoolers when it comes to English class. Um, they would much rather watch the movie than read the book. <laughs> and when they see it in action, 
it draws them to say, ah, oh, there may be something to this book thing. And when they see our peculiar lives of joy in action, it cause them to say, well, maybe something of this book thing. And as they turn these pages, they don't find a mirror that points back at them, but they find a window that points to our Savior. And if the price of seeing people's eternal destinies change is us facing momentary darkness that God can use to show that our joy is not rooted in our circumstances, we pray that God would do it and give us the courage to remember that God's past faithfulness is really an expression of a future promise. I'm grateful to be a part of this church today. I did the math, and if this is really 175 years then this is roughly the 9,000th time that First Baptist Church Newcastle has gathered to worship God for that truth. My prayer is that God would bring 9,000 more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and for the beauty of it. We're thankful that you are a God that doesn't change. So what we've seen about you in the past is, um, is data that we can be confident in, Father. Would you help us to live lives as if we know you and we know that you don't change? Make us those that are confident in you, that rest in your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.